there are two big things that motivate people to work on Wall Street. And it may be true in other industries, but it certainly is true on Wall Street. The two big things that motivate people to work here are money and power. And Jesus talks a lot about both of those. He talks all the time about money. And what Jesus knows is that money has a particular pull on our hearts. But what's fascinating is if you really unpack what Jesus says about money, what he really says is that the purpose of money in this life is to store up treasure for ourselves in the next life. You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. Matt, thank you so much for sitting down with me and uh, talking about this. Welcome to Jesus Walks on Wall Street. Wow, thanks. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. You've got it backwards. It's, uh, it's, I should be thanking you. It's nice for you to think of me, and it's an honor to, to do this with you. We're sitting here in uh, a lovely boardroom in Midtown Manhattan at Matt's workplace, which you'll hear about in here in just a minute. But I just want to walk the listeners through your resume. You and wow. I went to Hope College together. We did. It seems like a lifetime ago. It does. While we were at Hope, I seem to recall you got, was it like an internship at the White House, or was it like a full-on job at the White House? It's, it, was, it, was, it was both, actually. It started out as a, as a semester in Washington for school credit, um, and I landed an internship for that semester. And then I, um, actually, they hired me on for the summer um, after the semester ended. So it was a spring semester of 2001, and then I stayed on through the end of August 2001. So if you remember 2001, that means I was working in the White House about 10 days before 9-11, and I left right before, you know, right the end of August to go back to school. That's amazing. So when 9-11 happened, you had... It was a, a whole different personal experience for me. I'm sure. I mean, I knew the people who were, they showed these clips on TV of people running out of the White House, and they said, the, you know, the White House was one of the prime targets that day, and I knew the people and saw people that I knew and had worked with for the last eight or nine months on TV uh, running out of the White House, and it was, uh, it was you know, obviously it was a it was a terrible day for everybody but it was it was personal to me i feel like we could talk about that forever i'm going to move on though because you went from hope college you went from the white house experience onto harvard university the kennedy school of government where you got a master's in public policy with a concentration in business and government policy right at this time were you thinking you're gonna have a calling into political life yeah, I always thought I, I always thought the a, a really interesting and compelling career path was to spend my life going in and out of government and the private sector. And one of the things I observed, really just from those few months in the White House, was that there is a whole sort of cohort of people who love government and want to spend their whole life in government. And I do love government. I think the puzzle of big public policy problems is really fascinating. Hmm. Big questions like, what do you do with education? What do you do with health care? Really complicated, multifaceted problems that are just fascinating to tackle. But one of the things I realize is that a lot of people spend their whole life in government, and they're talking about things like job creation, and how does the economy work, and how do markets work. But they haven't actually worked in environments where they're hiring people or where they're directly impacting the economy in that way. And so what I wanted to do really from the very beginning was kind of develop this, this career of bisector competence where I was going in and out of government and the private sector. And what I did was really spend the first half of my career in government, and then for the last 10 years or so I've been, I've been in the private sector. So let's look at that. You are legislative director, campaign manager. Was this somebody running for governor? Uh, it was for state representative. I did okay. a, well, I did a couple of times state representative, state senator. Um, I, by the way, I love political campaigns. I just Political campaigns have two things that 
no project in the corporate world has. One thing a political campaign has is it, it has a, a defined deadline. Yes. So the project ends on a date, and there's nothing you can do to extend that date. It just ends. And the second thing a political campaign has is on that date, you know very clearly whether you've won or lost. Clarity. And I've never worked on a project in the corporate sector that has those two mm. things in common, where there's a, a defined deadline that never moves, and you know clearly at the end whether you've won or lost. So I've always loved political campaigns. I did a bunch of it kind of volunteer-wise and some for paid when I was in high school and college. So then in 2005, you became a fellow at the Robert Bosch Foundation. Is that in Germany? Uh, yeah, it's based in Germany. It's basically, it's the Robert Bosch, it's the Bosch uh, company, automotive company, uh, started by Robert Bosch, uh, I don't know how long ago, a long time ago. And they have a foundation, which is sort of the European equivalent to the Ford Foundation. And they funded me to go to Europe for a year after I finished at, at Harvard. And I was there studying uh, labor markets and welfare reform. I had done my master's uh, thesis on the U.S. welfare reform in 1995. And they wow. were sort of going through something similar in Germany at the time. And they actually brought me over there as uh, somewhat of an expert in the U.S. system to help How them think through the – How old were you the, I mean, you were in your uh, 20s. I have to think about that. I was, yeah, 25 or something like that. Wow. And I was helping these uh, – I spent – so I, I was there. I did two stints. I spent the first six months in the German government in Berlin – and then for the last six months, I went to a think tank in Munich where I spent time writing about what I had observed in government and how it compares to the U.S. model. So you were basically born an expert. But that's right. the, exactly. <laughs> you finally, somebody figured it out. <laughs> and then from there, you became an expert for the governor of Massachusetts. You were a uh, fiscal policy advisor to the governor of Massachusetts. Exactly. So we moved, back to, uh, we moved back to Boston. My wife was working in Boston at the time and had taken a, um, a leave of absence when we did our 12 months in Germany, and we moved back. And Massachusetts had a newly elected governor and uh, uh, kind of right time, right place. I happen to know a couple people who were working for him, and he hired me as a fiscal policy advisor. And then from there, you became a senior advisor, domestic finance at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Exactly. Yeah. So in the fall of 2006, I got a call actually from a former professor of mine at Harvard, who, uh, who was tapped to be the undersecretary under Hank Paulson. And he called me, and I was working for the governor of Massachusetts and actually loving my life there. And he called me one Sunday night, and he said, We're gonna go to, I'm going to go to Washington with, with Hank Paulson. Would you want to come with us and, and figure out D.C. together? So it was, uh, I ended up being there from 06 to 08. So at this point, you must have really been thinking you're living that dream that you were talking about of going in and out of the public and private sector, thinking about big ideas, how the economy works. Yeah, one of the themes of my career, which may be a diversion for this, is that is um, the idea of sometimes it's worth taking the road less traveled. And I was I was working for uh, Mitt Romney, who was the newly elected governor of Massachusetts, and was widely seen by both by both Democrats and Republicans as a very thoughtful rising star. And he had, was kind of toying with the idea of running for president at some point in his career, but hadn't made that explicit. And I thought this is great. I, you know, I kind of got in with him on the ground floor. I'm going to ride this out and see where it goes. And when I got the call to go to Washington only, you know, a year or so into that job, it was really a hard decision. And I probably asked 20 of my good friends what they thought I should do. And they all said the same thing. They all said, stay where you are. Hmm. They said you, to go into Washington, you'd be going into the last two years of a presidential, presidential administration. And right now you're working for a rising star. Just stay where, where you are. There's got, not going to be anything interesting going on in Washington. And for whatever reason, it may be a bit of rebellion in me or something, but I decided to go against the advice that everybody was giving me 
and I went to Washington from 06 to 08, which and were as the years out, of the yeah, financial as crisis. As it turns out, you went right to ground zero. You could not have designed a more interesting two years to yeah. be. So you left the White House 10 days before 9-11. <laughs> now you're going back to D.C. when so the markets are about to crash. There is a pattern wow. of, of, of chaos and conflict well, that you follows know, Sometimes me. people get assignments to go you know, be present in that chaos right. and help bring people out of it. Right. I want to move right on from there <clears throat> because then you go back to the private sector. You're vice president, senior advisor to the CEO of Wachovia Wells Fargo Bank. Right. So you're a senior advisor to the CEO of a major, major multinational bank. At the, it sounds more impressive than it, than it does. Uh, Wachovia at the time was the fourth largest uh, bank in the United States. They had gone through, um, they had gotten themselves pretty deep into some of the subprime mortgage issues, mm-hmm. and they did a, they switched their CEO in the summer of 2008, and they hired a guy named Robert Steele, who was my direct boss at the Treasury Department, to be their turnaround so you CEO. Came along with him. And he took me from the Treasury Department Great. to uh, Wachovia with him. And to be honest, it turned out to be more of an M&A exercise than mm-hmm. a turnaround exercise, and, and Wachovia was sold to Wells Fargo right. a few months later. Yeah. So uh, there you are. You're still the, the economy's still recovering, um, right. as it would for many years. And then you get called to be senior vice president, chief of staff for the New York Stock Exchange at a very – I mean, you, were you even 30 yet? I was, you must 29, have been... I was 29 years old when they hired me to do that job. Um, the New York Stock Exchange is a 220-plus-year-old institution. It's this amazing, iconic American institution and for the full I was the youngest person to have ever held that job at the New York Stock Exchange which I'm proud of and it was really fun I just loved that place you kind of it's one of those buildings where you walk in every morning and you just feel special um, having the chance to work there and kind of contribute to the uh, to the markets in that way so president of the New York Stock Exchange I mean when people think Wall Street yeah you were Wall Street. I mean, you were like the face, the poster boy. If no one is, if someone's Wall Street, it's you. That's right. right? That's amazing. So what was that job like? You had that job for uh, five and a half years. I did. And it was in the direct aftermath of the, of the financial crisis. And to your point, uh, you know, the, the New York Stock Exchange is, you could almost think of it as a utility where the, the, um, uh, or, or they, they are the, you know, the infrastructure that runs the markets. And yet, people see it as the face. And when the markets are crashing, CNBC is reporting live from the New York Stock Exchange. And so we really viewed ourselves as we have a very important role to play in restoring trust in the markets. And the first thing we did, and I helped with this a lot, is we had a, we, um, they had, the New York Stock Exchange had a new CEO at the time, and so I was part of his kind of team. And we instituted a basically a, a public affairs campaign called the Currency of Trust, and we put advertisements on TV, just trying to sort of like the um, you know Buy America ads in, during World sure. War II. We were just sort of trying to instill a sense of of, of, of confidence and trust in the in, in the U.S. financial and system. And the reason for that is that if people begin, if the, if the masses begin to lose or lack trust in these. Um, underpinning institutions, then the whole thing collapses. The whole thing falls apart. Yeah. That's right. Hmm. So you had to design this public relations campaign to reassure people. And, you know, history tells the story that it worked, right? We're still climbing out of it. I mean, there's still some structural issues. We could talk about that probably all day. But um, Yeah, I think you always look back with 2020 hindsight and say, I wish we would have done this differently mm-hmm. or better. But I think um, – you know, at the time, we're operating with limited information and being forced to make decisions pretty quickly. And, and I think um, for the most part, um, uh, as you said, we're still recovering. But 
Um, I don't think a lot of people 10 years ago, by the way, this is the 10th anniversary this wow. year, 2018. Right. I don't think a lot of people 10 years ago would have expected markets to be where they're at today mm -hmm. and the economy to be where it's at today and unemployment to be where it's at today. Right. Well, good job. <laughs> <laughs> I can't claim credit for that. So then after that um, five and a half year amazing ride, you're managing it's, director operations and strategy at uh, Perella Weinberg Partners, which is an investment bank. Tell us about that. Uh, so it's a uh, 650 person. We think of ourselves as kind of a boutique investment bank, uh, big offices in New York, London and Houston, and then a handful of other ones around the world. Uh, and we have two businesses. One is giving advice to corporations. Uh, financial advice mostly, but sometimes strategic advice. And the other business is uh, is managing money. And so we do have a handful of hedge funds that we operate under our umbrella and a couple of private equity funds and, and, uh, and a big outsourced CIO product. Tell me, you talked about this a, a little bit a couple of minutes ago, how you started imagining your career. Tell me about, though, did it feel like a calling? How young were you when you started thinking about, um, you know, being in, in public service and in the markets just tell me how, how this came to be in your in your life. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question. It started as as I as I alluded to, it really started as a as from a very early age. I just sort of had this political bug. And I loved politics, I loved elections, I did kind of student government stuff. I was president of my middle school, president of my high school, president of my college. I just had done that for as really as long as I can remember and I just loved um, I just loved the kind of the sport of it and the people side of it and the um, and everything about it and and as I grew a bit older it, it really morphed from a love of politics into a love of policy and and solving complicated challenging problems with lots of stakeholders and things that aren't black and white but where there's lots of perspectives and where there's lots of different uh, things coming together and you're trying to parse through the complexity and figure out uh, figure out what to do and there's a lot of that in the policy world. There's a lot of that in the business world. And I've found that um, a place like this where we're giving advice to clients, and a lot of them are corporate clients, it's really fun mm -hmm. helping people think about big, complicated business puzzles. Can you think of an example? This is going to be a little bit off the wall. Can you think of an example of something you learned as your middle school president <laughs> that you still apply today or have you, you've used in your career? Oh, wow, that's a good question. I have to think about that. The big issue at the time of our middle school, the whole campaign was on uh, the students wanted a soda machine. It's always about the soda the machine. Soda machine the soda machine. <laughs> exactly. And so I basically campaigned on, um, I'm going to get you the soda machine. The soda machine turned into a juice machine. Oh, of course. We were selling like Minute Maid juice, but it was enough to appease both sides. I guess that's what it is. I learned compromise because <laughs> the, students got, the students got a machine, and the faculty didn't have them uh, hyped up on Mountain Dew. So the, 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 not the faculty, the teachers, I guess, the f didn't have them hyped up on, uh, on sugar, sugar uh, the sodas. I'd vote for you, Matt, today. <laughs> <laughs> T tell me about your family, your current family, and uh, where do you live? How many yeah. kids do you have? So uh, you're nice to ask. Uh, I uh, met my wife at Hope College. Uh, we live in Lower Manhattan, and we have three kids. Battery Park, isn't it? Uh, it we're at, technically we're in the financial district, but okay. um, we did live in Battery Park for a few years. I have three kids, um, uh, Sophie, Lucy, and Oliver. Their ages are 10, 8, and 5 and a half. What's it like raising children in Manhattan? It's a fun challenge. I mean, in some ways, it's like, a, it's like an interesting social experiment where Sarah, who grew, my wife who grew up in Colorado, and I grew up in West Michigan, 
and we're raising our kids in this environment that is still pretty foreign to us in a lot of ways. We've been here for 10 years, but it still seems pretty foreign to us. But to our kids, it's all they know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's an interesting social, you know, they're exposed to all kinds of things that I wasn't exposed to till much later in life. And I find that there's both uh, challenges and opportunities that, that come with that. Uh, we really view it as a ministry. I mean, we really have deliberately decided to stay in New York because we believe that God transforming cities means God needs to have young families in the city. And so that's a big part of it. The other big part of it is just that you know, you give up space, but you get time. And mm-hmm. not having to commute yeah. means I can see my kids during the week, which having to commute out to the suburbs would probably not be the case. You talk about the kids. It's all they know. I mean, as you know, both my children were born here in Manhattan. Right. And we got called out to the suburbs in Greenwich, Connecticut, when the kids were three and a half and one and a half. And all their early toddler years, they played in the playgrounds of Central Park. I loved it. And you take them out to the playgrounds, and it's swarming with dozens, if not hundreds, of kids. And that's what my children knew and loved. That was their world. And when we moved into our house in Connecticut, there was a little play set in the backyard. And I remember, and there's about a hundred acres of woods on the other side of the playset. And I remember when we first moved in, the the children were staring out the back window into the backyard, and we're like, "Hey, kids, go play! Look at that! You get your own playground!" Right. And they were terrified. Yeah, there they thought no it was Central Park. There. Yeah, there were no kids. They're like, Why are there no kids on this playground? <laughs> it looks it looks scary. So they didn't want to go out there. Right. So that's just interesting. I mean, kids adapt, and you yeah. know, it is what it is. Yeah. And, and by the way, we uh, Nancy and I, we miss our time here in Manhattan. Yeah. We, we often do. The suburbs are nice, Yeah. but we miss the social interaction. We miss the, just yeah. the buzz of the city. And do you see a be- – am I allowed to ask you questions? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's on. switch the tables. Do you see a before and after with your kids? Have you seen things that kind of change from them living in the city to them living in the suburbs? One thing that Nancy and I talk about often is the lack of diversity where we right. live. Right. Uh, so socioeconomically, ethnically, right. it's very homogenous where yeah. we live. And so our kids are no longer exposed to all different, the different you know, varieties that yeah, God right. has created. Right. And so riding the bus and walking through Central Park, they're just exposed to the friendships they form. So that's a, that's a loss for yeah. us. You yeah. know, that, and so we try to do as much as we can where we go to other towns, yeah. do missional engagements and other exposures. Um, so that's a change that yeah. my kids unfortunately have. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, okay, let's back go back to you. <laughs> back to you. <laughs> let's go uh, further on here. Y- you've talked a little bit about your job now. Yeah. Can you describe for the listener? Let's say there's somebody listening here from where you and I spent so much of our lives. Let's say they're listening in West Michigan. Yeah. And they hear the phrase Wall Street. Yeah. And they might not be able to picture exactly what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. Tell us yeah. a little bit more about your your job, which you've already done a little bit of, yeah. and tell us how it fits into the larger economy. Yeah. And then I want you just to walk us through a typical day for you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. That's great. I, I think um, where I might start is, is to step back at a higher level and kind of talk about uh, Wall Street and the financial system, and in particular, how I see that contributing to human flourishing. And as a Christian, that's a, that's a topic I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about. Um, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, but I, I, I believe that as Christians, we ought to view all of our work as somehow contributing to God's work. And even our secular work ought to have some kind of sacred purpose to it. And for me, that starts first and foremost with uh, making sure that I'm doing something, that I'm in an industry that is somehow contributing to human flourishing. And to a lot of people, 
uh, I mean, you know, probably nine out of ten people, if you stopped them on the street and said, does Wall Street con- contribute to human flourishing, you'd get the same answer, and it would be a negative answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, if you remember back in 2009, uh, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, his name was is Lloyd Blankfein, and he was giving an interview, I think it was in London, if I remember correctly, and he, uh, he made an offhand joke where he referred to the work of an investment bank as doing God's work. And he was, of course, ridiculed like you, like you wouldn't believe. And admittedly, it was a pretty off-key comment to make, especially in the, you know, less than, you know, just a few months after the worst of the financial crisis. Uh, but in, a, in an interesting way, I actually view what he said as being profoundly biblical, where I actually do believe that Wall Street can be uh, God's work. And for me, like I said, it starts with, with Wall Street contributing to human flourishing. And so, so how does that happen? Uh, the, 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 if you step back from all of it and look at Wall Street and say, what exactly does Wall Street do? What is the thing that Wall Street does? There's one ma- major function of Wall Street, which is to uh, be a bridge. And the bridge connects on one side people, people or organizations who have capital. They have money to invest. That's on one side of the bridge. On the other side of the bridge are people or organizations who have ideas, and they need capital to turn those ideas into something real. And Wall Street is the infrastructure. It's the bridge that connects those two uh, to make everything that we know possible. So everything you use, whether it's your smartphone or Amazon or a life-saving drug or your favorite cupcake shop, all of it was at one point a risky idea that needed financing. And Wall Street is the bridge that connects people who have money with people who have ideas and can turn that money into something real. And that's, when you break it all down, that's what Wall Street does. And, uh, um, and that's how I view Wall Street as, as contributing to human flourishing. And one of the most stunning things when you, when you look around the world at countries that don't have a robust financial system is you see two things. First of all, you see a profound lack of a middle class. And second of all, you see no economic mobility. So there's no chance to move up the economic ladder. And what enables people moving up the economic ladder is access to capital. It's access to money. And the criticism of the U.S. financial system would be that it, that it actually enables too much debt, that it enables too much, too easy access to capital. And I'll admit that on one level, you know, too much household debt is a problem, but I would counter that by saying I would much rather have the problem of too much household debt than the problem most countries around the world face, which is not no enough access, access to, to credit at all. Mm-hmm. Because let me ac- stop you for a minute, yeah. okay? And I want to I challenge you a little bit, and I, I know where you're going to uh, go with your answer, but I want to just maybe raise something that maybe somebody listening at home is thinking yeah. about. So you've just talked about going up, going up the socioeconomic ladder, self-advancement, all of that. And you're talking about that in the context of flourishing and in God's call and God's kingdom. Yeah. But isn't it true, Matt, that um, Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, that his is a story of downward mobility, that, um, you know, to be so self-advancing? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that contrary to the, to the life of the Christian? Help me solve that tension. So that's a fascinating question, and I, I, I love it, and I've spent so much time thinking about this. I think the answer is yes and no. Um, if you look at, there, there are two big things that motivate people to work on Wall Street, and it may be true in other industries, but it certainly is true on Wall Street. The two big things that motivate people to work here are money and power. And Jesus talks a lot about both of those. He talks all the time about money, and what Jesus knows is that money has a particular pull on our hearts. 
But what's fascinating is if you really unpack what Jesus says about money, what he really says is that the purpose of money in this life is to store up treasure for ourselves in the next life. So he says all this stuff, like in Luke 12, he says, sell what you have so that you can, so that you can have purses for yourselves that don't wear out, treasure for yourself in heaven that will last forever. And the fascinating thing to me about that statement is he's saying it's okay to want money. It's okay to want wealth. The question is, how do you get it? And how do you get it in a way that will last forever? And to your point, the way he's telling us to get it is to be generous, to give our money away. And what you do then is you store up for yourselves treasure, real treasure in heaven that lasts forever. And the, the same is true with everything Jesus says about power and responsibility. And there's these amazing moments in the Bible where, where uh, you know, Jesus' disciples will come to him and ask questions like, what does it take to be great in the kingdom of heaven? And a lot of us have this view of Jesus, this sort of, this humble Jesus, and he would say, you're asking the wrong question. Milk, milk toast Jesus. Yeah, you shouldn't want to be, great, be great in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. We're all going to be equal in the kingdom of heaven. Just fit in, just, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, just make yourself, uh, you know, just be a good dad. And the amazing so thing is that Jesus said. doesn't answer mm-hmm. it that way. He answers the question. He tells you how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. You make yourself last. You make yourself a servant. At one point, he says, act like these little children, and you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and there's, this, there's this parable, uh, the parable of the ten minus, which is all about being faithful with the little things. And the reward for being faithful with the little things is more responsibility. Right. So in that parable, you get to— you get you get authority over cities is the reward in that parable. And what I love about all of it is that Jesus is saying it's okay to want to be great. It's okay to aspire to greatness. It's okay to aspire to want to make a difference. It's how you do it. Mm. And the way you do it, the way you become first is you make yourself last. The way you have big impact is to be faithful with the little things. And, um, and so that's how I connect. That's how I connect um, Wall Street. And by the way, the, the real root of the question is, it basically you're saying, isn't Wall Street full of greed and hubris? And uh, I basically say, yeah, it is. Mm. And to me, that's all the more reason for Christians to yeah. run toward it, because we can take those things that yeah. the world views one way, and we can flip it upside down. But isn't it easier, Matt, for me to sit here and complain about Wall Street and how greedy and corrupt it is while I run away from it? Sure. It's definitely easier. <laughs> and it's, w- what's amazing to me is if you look over history, um, the arguments we're making about Wall Street today are basically the same arguments. If you look at the debates that that Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had about the U.S. economic system, they're basically making the same arguments. And Alexander Hamilton at the time was sort of the representation of Wall Street. And Jefferson is telling him, Wall Street does nothing except pay themselves and create chaos for everybody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And that's the same argument mm-hmm. that, that folks would make today. It's a perception for sure. So, Well, there's some reality to it. So I'm going to ask you a question that's uh, it's not to stump you, but I just want to try oh, to wow. get at uh, something personal and work-related as they, as they mix. So if I were to meet, if I were to go down the hallway here yep. and meet your executive assistant, if I were to say, does Matt Skogan, does your boss, does he have faith? And what is it? And, and tell me how she would respond to that. Uh, it's a good question. We should ask her. I think she would say, yes, he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, uh, you know, different people have different styles with this, and I'm not one to wear it on my sleeve all the time and talk about it all the time. But I, um, uh, I view my work as a ministry. I really do. And, I, and, um, and this, like most other businesses, is a people business, and, uh, and, and I view the people here as a ministry. 
and that's part of what wakes me up every morning is 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 um, caring for the people here, and and I do my best to care for the people here in a way that Christ Himself would would care for them. So that's it's, getting down to the heart of the matter here. I want to ask a question in a very particular way. Yeah, and I want you to just just respond to it. Okay, where do you see Jesus on Wall Street? Well, your question is framed in a way that assumes he's there, and, and um, I don't see him. Hmm. I don't see him as often or as clearly as I wish I did. There hmm. are just simply not a lot of Christians in this world. Hmm. And I think, uh, like I said, I view this as a ministry, and, and I didn't mean to make it sound easy before because it's it's just not. And I actually think the way I've gotten through it personally is by telling myself, over and over again, that this is uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. And T- tell and us more a, about a that. In what ways that. is it uncomfortable? I think, um, uh, first of all, there's there's a couple of different reactions you get that I get from people who find out I'm a Christian. One is sort of the, the most common one is just a skepticism, which is basically you really believe that mm. you know, you you know, you know the way the world looks out there, right? You know all the the injustice. You really believe that someone's in charge of all this, and. A lot of times it's skepticism or cynical. Mm -hmm. The the other one I've gotten is just downright ridicule. There was a, I had a colleague once uh, who um, uh, I left my iPad in a meeting to go to the restroom and it was sitting out and he discovered that I had the Bible on my iPad. And for the rest of the time I worked with him, he just loved making jokes about it. He would say things like, um, uh, (laughs) the question would be something really simple could go wrong. Like uh, the, the printer was out of toner. And he would say, "Okay, Matt, you know, where's God in this? How do you how do you explain this?" And it, it took me a while, but I, I I eventually just started. Every time he would say that, I would say, "I don't know. Why don't you ask him yourself?" <laughs> and one of the things I pray about a lot is is um, is how to be real and shrewd with with my colleagues. And you know, Jesus has this line in in Luke 16 where he says, "The people of this world are more shrewd." in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. And I think what he's saying is he's saying, you know, I've looked at Christians, and here's something I see in Christians is a special kind of simple-mindedness, a special brand of naivete, a special kind of black-and-white thinking. And in a lot of ways, the world is outmaneuvering you, church. Mm. And one of the things I've been praying about a lot is I think God specifically put me in this place, in this firm, in this industry for a reason. And I want to be really smart and really shrewd about that. And so for me, it's manifested itself in, in two. There's two big goals that I have. One is to be blameless and one is to be wise. And all throughout the Psalms, you see David praying this, I want to be blameless. That's the word he uses over and over again in the Psalms. I want to be blameless. And I want, this is I'm so far from it, but I want people to look at me and my work and say, I didn't agree with him always, or I w- maybe I would have made a decision differently, but he was blameless. And that is not easy. It's just not. There are so many questions like, uh, you know, what if you're charged with selling a product that you don't necessarily believe in? Yep. How do you be blameless in that scenario? Can you think or, of any examples where you've had to make a, a decision to be blameless when it was maybe even to the detriment of the bottom line of the firm? Uh, the, the hardest ones, to be honest, are the people ones. The hardest ones are are how do you deal with an underperforming employee in a way that that both shows Christ's love and justice? And those are the hardest ones, to be honest. Um, the the other one that I've encountered is 
uh, like I said, wisdom is something I really strive for. And there was a couple, of, uh, a scenario a couple of weeks ago where there was a pretty big uh, disagreement between two people at the firm, and I was right in the middle of it. I was not taking sides, but I was trying to uh, to kind of broker this disagreement. And I was really praying for wisdom. And what I was praying is, you know, the story in the Bible when Solomon. Uh, these two women come and they're fighting over a baby. What a strange story, right? What a strange story. But he cuts through. He just figures out the right thing to say to cut through it. And mm-hmm. I was praying for that kind of wisdom. He says, "We'll cut the baby in half, and then we'll give half of the baby to each 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 uh, woman." And then the of course the real mom says, "No, give it to her." Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that that's the real mom. And I was praying for that kind of wisdom, something that a complicated argument. How can I pierce through this mm-hmm. in a profound way? And it turned out to be a disaster. Mm. I, I thought I was like being shrewd, like we talked about. And I basically ended up making the problem worse. And I ended up pissing off people on both sides of the argument. And to be honest, I was kind of mad at God. Mm. And I was saying, you know, God, I was praying for that kind of Solomon-like wisdom. And I made it worse. Like, what's the deal with this? And I think what I learned through that situation is sometimes God just lets us make mistakes. And what he wants us to do is... Is, is handle that mistake in a way mm-hmm. that's maybe different from the way mm-hmm. the world would handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he sometimes just lets us walk into things and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, tell me about just some conversations you have with your wife, Sarah, about this life, your career. Does she, have a, does she work outside the home as well? She, she is a, uh, a software engineer. She spends her time taking care of the kids now, but she's had, um, up until about a year and a half ago, she was working with, with Goldman Sachs doing uh, software engineering stuff with them. So, I mean, I assume you and she have conversations about um, God's calling in your lives yeah. and, you know, your role in, in the overall economy and in the kingdom. Are there ever points where you have disagreements on how your future is going to look? And does she, I mean, do either one of you ever say, you know what, let's just go for the simpler life. Let's go move back to Colorado or Michigan and just simplify and get out of this rat race. Yeah, once in a while. I mean, um, we've certainly had those kind of discussions. I think when we, what's so fascinating is God has moved us around really sort of up and down the East Coast since we've been married, from Boston to D.C. to Charlotte for a brief time and now New York. And and um, when you look back, you can so clearly see God's hand in all of it and him guiding us. And I think what that has taught us is that God's in control and he's telling us where to go and he's positioning us and he's guiding every step. And so it sounds a bit trite maybe, but but we've sort of reached the point in our walk where we're just pretty comfortable to let God lead us. And and um, for now, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm supposed to live in this city and work at this firm. And that may change in a, in a few months. I don't know. But for now, I know this is where I'm supposed to be. So kind of on the question I asked a few minutes ago, where do you see Jesus on Wall Street? We talked about how there aren't very many other Christians in in your workplace and all of that. But what you've just articulated is God's hand on your life. Right. So what you're saying is that when you took this call to come and work on Wall Street, God didn't abandon you here. Right. He's still been very present and sovereign over your life. So could you say personally you see Jesus on Wall Street in your relationship with him? Oh, I see him in my life for sure. Mm. Yeah. Every once in a while I talk with people and they have a little bit of a, it's probably a combination guilt motivation and maybe some nostalgia for their, almost everybody here in Manhattan, at least that I run with, 
has a hometown somewhere, right? whether it's in Florida or California or whatever, yeah. there's a little hometown, and they have a mom or a mother-in-law or an aunt or somebody saying, when are you going to move back home? Right. Don't right. you want a yard for your kids? <laughs> and I know a lot of people who have that constant tug on their yeah. heart, and uh, sometimes, it's, like I said, it's wrapped in with guilt, and they maybe think that's maybe where we should go. But I'm not hearing all that much from you. It sounds like you're pretty secure mm-hmm. in where God has placed you. And you're not, you don't have that, I mean, I love what you just said a minute ago. That could change in a few months. Yeah. God could, yeah. could call you somewhere else. Yeah. And you would respond because yeah. you would follow his lead. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm a hyper planner. And for my whole life, I've sort of had the five and ten year plan mapped out. And what I've learned is that the five and ten year plan has never, not once, gone the way I thought it was going to go. And... I, I guess what I've learned is it's okay to have a plan, but you certainly mm, shouldn't be so blinded by your yeah. plan that you ignore things that come up along the way. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, I sort of have a uh, – I think I have a feel for what God might be preparing me for, but I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it's going to turn into. Hmm. Okay, just a couple of last questions. Yeah. Do you have a church community here in Manhattan? And tell me what it's like. We have an amazing church community. Uh, it's called Lower Manhattan Community Church. It meets uh, downtown, as the name would suggest. Uh, my wife and I are both both super involved in the church. It's, Isn't it true that you preach sometimes when I the preach, pastor's out of town? I preach once in a while, four <laughs> or five times a year, which is amateur hour, but it's fun. It's a great spiritual exercise for me, so I like it. The other thing, back to one of your previous questions, is the sermons all end up online. And so every once I've in a while— I've listened to your sermons. Well, I'm, th- thank you. Sorry you had to endure <laughs> They're that. They're excellent. But one of the things that comes up once in a while is a colleague here will be Googling me or something, and they'll find these things uh. online. And uh, it's always a great—first of all, I like it because it forces me to be accountable. It just keeps mm. me accountable and kind of be the same person at church and at work. Uh, but it always makes for a fun and interesting conversation when somebody discovers that. Um, I forgot where I was supposed to go with this question. Uh, your church, you're talking about church, your church. My church, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's an amazing church. It's grown really quickly. Um, we started going there nine years ago when there was maybe 30 people, uh, maybe, on a given Sunday, and now we're between two and 300 every uh-huh. week. And, uh, Do you guys a, meet in a school gym? or We meet in a, uh, it's, it's an event space mm-hmm. in Tribeca. And um, before I go on to fellowship hour, Okay. Uh, is there anything that you that that's maybe stirred up in your mind over the last forty minutes or so that you would want us to talk about? What, what do you want me to, to think about, or the listener to think about? I think we've covered a lot. I um, I can't think of anything else unless you yeah. have other questions. No, I mean I we could, could, I could ask you some questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always love talking with you, Matt. But let's go to fellowship hour. When you're sipping coffee during fellowship hour after church this Sunday and you're standing there chatting with somebody, what what will you be chatting about? Well, what I'll be chatting about probably is my kids, or how was your week, or something like that. But I think you might be asking me to talk about something a little more interesting. Yeah, tell us something unrelated to family or work, just what goes on in your thought world when when your mind drifts. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is is, um, I read there was a study done at Oxford uh, by a couple of economists, and they predicted that within the next two decades, up to half of American jobs could be automated. And that sounds high to me, but let's assume it's a, it's maybe it's not half, but some kind of high percentage. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean for public policy? What does that mean for education? What does that mean for the future of work? And what is that, you know, if there are really up to half of the American workforce that's just out of a job, but, you know, that really... 
um, begs some fundamental questions about kind of how people contribute to society. And uh, I think there's a whole, we could have a whole series of, of conversations on this topic. But one of the things for me that, that I actually think in terms of you and I are on the uh, board of, a, uh, of our school, Hope mm -hmm. College, which is a small liberal arts college in Michigan. And I actually think, uh, this will sound a bit self-serving to our alma mater, but I actually think that liberal arts mm. sort of is the solution to automization. Because if you think about the world becoming more dominated by machines, I actually think that means humans ought to become even more human. That what will really matter in the world that's profoundly uh, automated is people who are empathetic, people who can have judgment, who can work across cultures, people who understand lots of different things. And in, a, in an amazing way, uh, I actually think if you look at – so here, th this will end with this, but this is a good thought – if you look at, I think the three greatest innovators of our generation are Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. And the three of them have one thing in common, which is that in any single category, none of them are the best in the world. None of them are the best computer programmers in the world. None of them are the best scientists in the world. None of them are the best designers in the world. But what they, all three of them have is this incredible breadth of knowledge. And Steve Jobs used to end all of his employee town halls by showing a, a street sign that said liberal arts on one side and technology on the other. And he believed that innovation happened when the humanities and technology intersected. And I actually think this is sort of the future that humans need this broad it, – it's not the case anymore that you can specialize in one thing and spend your life there. You need a broad uh, uh, swath of knowledge and expertise and if Steve Jobs is right, which I think he is, then that's where innovation happens, when you can think about lots of things coming together at once. I love this because what you're really saying is something I, I say to my wife all the time. Basically, the solution to all our problems <laughs> is to send our kids to Hope College. <laughs> exactly. So let's end so on that So let's note. do that. Send our kids to Hope College. Matt, thank you so much for your time. This has been very enriching and edifying for me, and I hope it is for all oh, people you're, who are listening you're at you're kind to say it. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you, sir. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Nathan Hart. On the next episode... This was revealed to us. I can't take any credit for these ideas. This was something that was presented in a beautiful way, and it changed everything. It, it changed the way we spent our money. It changed the way we thought about money's purpose. It changed where we lived. We made a lot of really significant decisions to reorder our lives around this idea that the stuff that we were um, blessed to receive, income from my job, was really not meant to increase our lifestyle, but was really meant to be used to heal the world. Mm -hmm.